0: Diversity, equity, and inclusion. We've all heard the term. For some, it's unclear exactly what it means. For others, it's that race thing again. For another group, it may be a PR exercise to boost reputational goodwill. And for some, it's a strategic business imperative and quite simply the right thing to do. Hello and welcome to a new episode of The Workplace Revolution with me, Sihle Bolani. In today's episode, I'm joined by innovator and activist, Sharita Dyer. I'm just going to pause there for a second and just confirm that I'm pronouncing your name correctly.
1: That is correct, Sihle.
0: <laughs> okay, I just realized I didn't ask you before I started. <laughs> okay, perfect. Perfect
1: pronunciation and thank you for
0: asking. Awesome, Thanks. <laughs> Charita Dyer is a purpose-led innovator and a diversity, equity, and inclusion advocate, coach, and advisor. She is passionate about leveraging the power of technology to drive social change and to create an equitable and inclusive society for everyone. Charita also frequently speaks, writes, and mentors on the subject of DEI and advocating for social change. She has previously held various senior executive roles at global communications and management consulting firms in the areas of strategy, business transformation, sales growth, and digital transformation. In her various leadership roles, Sharita has held executive sponsorship mandate for steering adoption of organization and geographic-wide DEI programs, as well as chairing global DEI committees across South Africa East and West Africa, the Middle East and North America. Sharita has served as a C-suite advisor to several international organizations and has a proven track record as a trusted advisor and partner to organizations and leaders, steering them through business transformation and disruption. Chirita is passionate about inclusive leadership development and creating environments which enable individuals with diverse backgrounds and experiences to thrive. She conceptualized and implemented leadership development programs focused on developing emerging leaders who operate at the intersection of race and gender. She also pioneered a DEI program, piloted in North America, and subsequently adopted across geographies, which offered a model for supporting parents reintegrating back into the workplace post-maternity leave, as well as those who are coming back from parenting sabbaticals. These programs were motivated and informed by her own lived experiences as a woman of color, navigating her leadership journey in a global organization, and as a parent who took a long-term sabbatical to focus on her young family. Sharita's experiences in the workplace, where she was often the only in the room, made her acutely aware that even in well-intended businesses with progressive policies, barriers still exist and continue to hold marginalized groups back. Drawing on her experiences, in 2020, Sharita followed her calling to invest her time intentionally to focus on disruptive DEI and social change advocacy, which she believes allows her to operate at the intersection of her purpose and her impact. She had come to the realization that if she is not actively challenging the status quo, then she is part of the problem. Charita is committed to actively pursuing work that is close to her heart and her purpose, which is to build an inclusive and equitable world for everyone. She is deeply passionate about business and technology as a tool for breaking the cycle of poverty and enabling previously systematically disadvantaged communities to create generational wealth. She currently serves as a business advisor and consultant at Stanford University's Seed Innovation Program, which allows her to bring her vast business expertise to bear on the shared vision of breaking the cycle of poverty and emerging economies. Sharita, now you are a woman who has done everything. <laughs> my
1: goodness, I actually had to pause and wonder, who are you talking about? What an introduction, my
0: goodness. I mean, it's, it's, it's absolutely beautiful. It's fascinating. It's inspiring. But before we get into our conversation, won't you just tell us a little bit more about, first your journey and what is it that called you to this particular space of fighting the inequalities that exist within the workplace?
1: Yeah, no, of course. I mean, you covered so much, but, you know, maybe let me pause and tell you a little bit about how I identify. Um, You know, so I call myself uh, an inclusion activist because that's really what I identify as, right? Mm. Um, For me, activism is something that's always been close to my heart. And I think I think was always an activist you know now that i reflect on my life and i reflect on my career um even as a young girl growing up on this farm and you know running barefoot through a farm i was always the one that was challenging the world around me i was mm-hmm. always the one speaking out on behalf of others um you know those who didn't have a voice and a platform It was generally me who felt that I needed to have a voice for myself and for others. Mm. Now, I come from a family of activists as well, right? My grandfather was very involved in freedom struggle. So I grew up with social justice and activism being quite usual dinnertime conversations. You know, Mm. we would sit around the table talking about these topics. And it really was ingrained in me from from a very young age. But for me, I didn't start in diversity and inclusion work in my career. And over the two odd decades spanning my career, which, you know, you covered so well, and I feel like I've done so much, but I never started in diversity and inclusion. This Mm -hmm. was really purpose and passion work for me. And what led me to the work really, Ziklaire, was being that only in the room. It was being that woman of color, sitting in the room, looking around me and thinking, there's no one here that looks like me. Mm -hmm. And these barriers still exist for people like us. Now, when I first entered the workplace, South Africa was a very young democracy, and I think I'm giving away my age now, but, you know, it was this young fledgling democracy, and I liken it to being one of these little chicks, right, that are coming into the lion's den, and you all, you know, you bright-eyed, and you are enthusiastic, and you come in there, and you have these naive views, and I certainly had this naive view, mm-hmm. and I thought, well, all I needed to do was work hard, right? Mm. Put my head down, work hard, do as I'm told, because that's what my parents told me. Mm-hmm. They said, "Go out, your grandfather fought for a, you know, an equal society, and here it is now. Go out and do your thing." But I was quite unprepared for the reality that workplaces were not designed for people like me. Mm. You know, I, I didn't even know that we needed roles like diversity and inclusion in the workplace. Mm. I just thought, well. Inclusion is a basic skill that everyone learns at home, right? You Mm. learn how to value and respect others. Your parents tell you don't be a bully. But I learned quickly that it wasn't quite that way. Mm. So I started to see that workplaces are really designed for what I call this prototype ideal worker. And this is not an inclusive prototype. Mm. These are the characteristics that are associated with being a white, able-bodied, heterosexual man. Mm. And the conditions for success And the version for success is set by these groups to serve these groups. Now, just because we had a law that was abolished and we now have equitable legislation and policies, this didn't automatically magically mean that bias and prejudice was eradicated, right? Mm. I, I naively believe that it was, but that's just not the case. So I started getting involved quite early in my career in various DEI efforts, but this was in addition to my existing responsibilities and i started doing this work because i wanted to be part of the solution and it was a calling for me yeah. but as i navigated my career and let me tell you Claire, i attended all the professional development courses i steered these initiatives i was the first to put my hand up and say me 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 you know let me leave these things i soon realized that even in well intended businesses they are not meritocracies right mm. and barriers still exist and this myth perpetuates that this title of seniority will negate barriers mm-hmm. and it will equal the playing field. But mm-hmm. that's not true. And that's a form of denial. Workplaces were not designed for everyone to belong. That's just the truth. We don't all experience workplaces in the same way, regardless of our title our seniority or rank. And even more perversely, and this was hard for me to accept that even if we were somehow able to overcome these barriers through sheer persistence and thrive, then the existence of these barriers get denied.
0: Mm. And that's
1: quite an impossible situation, right? And now we had laws that that made, you know, that abolished the apartheid, but these barriers were now, and inequities were driven underground, right? So mm. it became covert and invisible. And because of that, they go unaddressed and ignored. But the emotional tax is real. And it's severe. And I found that I was doing everything that was expected of me. I had these academic qualifications. I mean, some in some cases, more so than my white peers. And I was really working hard and pushing myself. But my input was not equal to my output. right? I was just not progressing at the same pace. And I had to constantly work harder to prove that I belong. And the harder I worked, and these were stories I was hearing from other women, particularly black and brown women, Mm. that the more we worked and the more we succeeded, the more we resented. Mm. And we resented because we were defying stereotypes and we were challenging the idea that we didn't belong. And we refused to give others a reason to say, oh, see, they can't make it. They don't belong here. Mm. But I just kept saying, you know what? Barriers don't exist. Work hard and you'll be fine. Right. Mm -hmm. So the turning point for me, and I think we all generally reach this turning point in our lives and we just go, oh, my goodness, something needs to shift. So the turning point for me was doing this really incredibly challenging situation that I was navigating with an ex-employer and I was in a very senior position, but I was still experiencing a lot of these barriers. Now, you know, it's very comforting when you know that you're not alone. Right. And others have similar experiences. But the time seeker, I felt very alone. I I was really in a fight for survival. And I had no one in my workplace to turn to. There was no one I could trust. And you know, they say when it rains it pours, because around the same time, my daughter, I have a ten year old daughter, she was dealing with the trauma of exclusion and racism at her extramural school. Mm. So I had to take a really long, hard look at myself, you know, and I had to accept, you know what? No one's coming to save us. And if I'm not going to challenge the system, then I'm part of this problem. Mm. And if I'm not using my lived experiences to build a better place for our kids and for people who are still discriminated against, then what would these experiences have been for? They Mm. would just be heartbreaking experiences. So I really felt, you know what, this is my responsibility now to be part of this change. I can't wait for someone else to solve this for me or save us. Mm. So the place I landed was... And you know, and this is very empowering because we have to take a long, hard look at ourselves and say, and as women, we do this. We say sometimes, am I good enough? Can I do this? Do I have the skills to do this? And I had to believe that everyone can make a change in their individual capacity. I didn't have to wait, you know, till like I finished a course or build that platform or established that network. I could really start where I was with what I knew and the resources I had. Mm. And that was when I decided, I have to leave the corporate world. I, I I can't disrupt the status quo from within because what we need is a revolution. Mm. We need a disruption. So I set up my practice and have now dedicated the space of my life to calling out these barriers mm. and really ultimately to challenging what true equality and freedom in the workplace looks
0: like. Mm. I love that. And you know, you mentioned something very interesting earlier, which is one of the biggest challenges that. You know, those of us who work in the space um, often struggle with, you know, when Mm -hmm. when when South Africa shifted over into the Rainbow Nation. um, (laughs) 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 We were all made to believe that there's this magic wand that was cast over the country and somehow we will wake up at the end of the day after voting on the 27th of april 1994 and we will live in a different country and so when we wake up on the 28th of april everything will be normal everything will be equal all of us will have equal opportunities but we all know that that's not the case right even though legislation um has 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 worked to you know, bridge some gaps along the way. We know that there are certain regulations in place to ensure that we are not, you know, discriminated against because of our race, etc., etc. But we all know that the reality is as much as those regulations and legislations may exist, as much as the country may be democratic, our lived experiences tell us a very different story because the actual issue of racism. And how it's embedded within society and how it shows up was not actually dealt with. There were no consequences for people who were harmful in the way in which they treated marginalized groups. And the same applies in the workplace. You know, I'm always just like, you know, so, so struck when organizations will come up one day and very proudly say, We have just introduced a new DEI program because we are a company that wants to make sure that everyone feels like they belong because we are a family and they'll come (laughs) and they'll have these banners and these new values that they've worked on and this new employee value proposition because oh wow we're this new company now we are completely different um and they'll have new colors and new everything and now they're so vibrant and now you're seeing more black people in all of their artwork and their campaigns (laughs) but they have not dealt with the racists in the company they have not dealt with the misogynists and 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 the, the the homophobes in the company and so we come in as black brown people women members of the LGBTQIA plus community into these organizations thinking, oh, okay, they're pro-diversity. They're very inclusive. They want to create a different reality for us. So this is going to be a safe space, except we walk into a space where we're finding people who are still racist, misogynistic, etc., who are resentful of the fact that we are now in their space. So how do we actually get this right within organizations?
1: You know, That is such a great question and um, I could talk And we could talk for hours about that, right? Mm. And I think I'll probably start addressing your question because I love what you're saying about the performative stuff, right? Mm. You know, all the shiny bells and whistles and the great ad campaigns. And, you know, I wish, I really wish inclusion worked that way. I Mm. I wish we could actually just kind of microwave inclusion. I always say transformation takes time and that you have to go to the essence of the problem. And Mm. these are systemic issues, right? Mm. So let me maybe start by saying what, I have seen that DEI is not, Mm -hmm. right? And where we actually, um, where leaders are misled and are misleading themselves, where they actually look at DEI. So diversity and inclusion is not the same thing. Now, I know that sounds really obvious to you and me, Mm -hmm. right? And people who are doing the work, but you'd be surprised at how often leaders use these terms interchangeably mm. and i often hear this from leaders they go oh well look at our numbers we have great diversity stats so we are inclusive mm. i mean we treat everyone the same so what's the problem so firstly di is not about having impressive diversity represent, representation stats now some people may find this to be a contentious view But we have to move past these numbers, too. Now, of course, you need equitable policies. But Mm -hmm. just because you have a diverse workplace, it doesn't automatically mean that you have an inclusive environment Mm -hmm. where everyone is valued and could belong. Many organizations think that diversity numbers is the work and that Mm -hmm. inclusion is this Fluffy, optional, extra thing that we're asking for, and that's not correct. Mm. Now, you know, I've been fortunate to work with universities like Stanford and Harvard, and Harvard released this really great study recently, a very rigorous study that actually proves that diversity alone does not create improved business performance. Mm. It's actually organizations that can harness diversity through the creation of an inclusive environment that can outperform their peers. So in fact, organizations with diversity alone and great ad campaigns and saying we are diverse and, and don't have cultural transformation, these organizations have the opposite negative effect Mm. and employees feel tokenized and it Mm -hmm. actually kills their business growth and it stifles innovation and their relationship with stakeholders. Mm. So inclusive environments are an absolute imperative. Mm. The second thing is that diversity is not just about saying, well, I have an impressive statistic, which actually means nothing. If people are not in positions where they can control their narrative, they free and safe to bring their authentic selves to work. Mm-hmm. It's not equality if people are not safe to use their voices mm-hmm. and be included in spaces where it matters to them, and I stress that, where it matters to them, not where dominant groups think they belong or allow them access to. And if this is not happening, then your people are tokens and, and it doesn't matter how impressive your stats may look, it's not equality. Equality is also, and DEI is not about treating everyone the same, and this this frustrates me when I hear that, right? Mm. Are we equal? We're we all the same. Mm. No, we're not all the same. Mm. We're all born equal, but we're not the same. We don't experience workplaces in the same way. Mm. We don't experience inequities and barriers in the same way. The way I experience an inequity may be very different to the way a white woman experience inequities. Mm. So workplaces, were not they were not designed for us. They were designed for the dominant group. And we have to actually be aware of that. We have to point it out that it, ser- it just doesn't serve us. The definitions of success were not designed for us. DI is also not about a select group of people that make all the decisions, right? About mm. what DEI is and what, what the definition of bias and discrimination is. We are still largely in environments where dominant groups control the narrative, mm. right? And they decide, they decide how we will be included, valued, and progressed. Mm-hmm. There's indisputably still a power imbalance in social networks and in decision-making circles. And we underestimate how powerful social networks are. So decisions get made in those networks. DI is an inclusive process. It should be an inclusive process Mm. where all voices are heard. It's actually when you pause and you think about it, it's ludicrous to give dominant groups the power Mm -hmm. to define what bias looks like, Mm -hmm. or even to give them the authority to verify the existence of barriers and inequalities, because they don't have our lived experience. It's not affecting them in the same way, Mm -hmm. right? And that is not equality. So equality and inclusion, what, what is it? What does it look like in the workplace? Equality and inclusion is about valuing and rewarding differences, not tolerating differences. It's about valuing and rewarding differences. Mm -hmm. It's about actively removing the invisible barriers we face and believing us when we say there's an invisible barrier. We've got to create environments where everyone has equal ability to progress and thrive and create psychologically safe environments where we can all belong and be free and safe to be authentic selves Mm -hmm. and not fear victimization, retaliation. Mm. It's not about having one of those few seats at the table that we are given or asking for permission from gatekeepers to validate our lived experiences. It's Mm -hmm. about so much more.
0: Mm. I'm just thinking about, you know... um... When you you know organizations will speak about doing um, employee surveys or you know engagement dipsticks, to be able to see whether they're on the right track as far as diversity and inclusion is concerned and how everybody's feeling, um and it's always interesting to me to see how they assess, the feedback from surveys like that um uh, because they'll get back you know a whole bunch. Of, of of completed surveys and they'll be like, oh, well, 70% says they're happy. They feel like they can be their most authentic self. They don't have any issues. They feel that people from different cultures and backgrounds all get along well with each other. Um, they believe that the company is committed to diversity and inclusion, you know, and you're like, okay, that's great. Now, out of your staff, yeah. your total staff compliment, what percentage is white? Or what percentage is non-white? What percentage is men? What percentage is women? How does that then influence the feedback that you are getting back from your employees? Because what I find is that generally people's perspectives on their experience within the company is largely (coughs) influenced by whether or not they feel psychologically safe. Um, by whether or not they have some level of privilege within the organization. So if they know that they, their jobs are safe, they know that they have career ad- and a, a career advancement plan that is specifically for them. If they know that they have sponsors within the organization, obviously it's going to seem like a fantastic place for them. But that doesn't mean that that is the experience for other marginalized <coughs> groups within the organization. But I find that that information is never filtered to the level that enables organizations to get a true picture of what's happening there. And then what ends up happening is that organizations will then say, you see, we don't have any issues about diversity and inclusion. We're doing perfectly well. While the marginalized groups are like, Oh my gosh, I can't stand this place. I'm struggling. I don't know what to do. I can't show up as myself. I'm afraid that if I say something, I'm going to be marginalized even further. I'm going to be dealing with retaliation. So for, Organizations who do, I mean, you know, we we know that organizations are often into surveys, all sorts of dipsticks throughout the course of a year. What are the things that they should actually be looking out for when reviewing the responses to surveys? What are the types of filters that they need to be having in place?
1: So I think firstly, you know, you you raised an important point that when we do these surveys, we can't assume a one-size-fits-all approach, right? Mm -hmm. We can't group everyone together and say that this is representative. We have to actually call out specific groups of people. So we should actually be reporting on um, the experiences and the results of women of color, black women and brown women, right? Mm -hmm. So we need to call those out in distinct groups. And we need, you know, the work that, that I do is... Very deeply rooted in an understanding that we need to focus our efforts to the people who need it most. Mm. And in workplaces, that is women of color and particularly black women. Mm. Those are the groups that need the most focus right now. So we need to call out the most marginalized groups and we need to actually delve into what are their experiences and what are they, you know, what's really happening in the workplace for them. I always say that if we are moving past diversity numbers and we're not just measuring the quotas, we have to measure experiences of inclusion and Mm -hmm. we have to measure employee engagement. And these statistics need to be put on the scorecard of leaders and they need to be held accountable. Mm -hmm. So some of the things we need to first start doing is we can't have this blanket approach and say everyone is experiencing the workplace in the same way, Mm -hmm. because again, we're perpetuating this myth and we are denying that everyone is different and that we have individual barriers. Mm. So we need to call out the specific categories of people. The second thing is we can't just rely on, well, how are experience experiencing the workplace? We need to look at other statistics as well. Mm. We need to look at the progress and the promotion of black and brown women. We need to look at the attrition. So are they resigning more quickly than others? You know, what are the reasons for resigning, et cetera? We need to look at exit interviews. And and I'm a strong advocate that exit interviews need to be done by outside parties and not by HR, because sometimes we don't even want to disclose what really we went through in the workplace. So we need to be looking at all of these different characteristics. We also need to be comparing groups of people. So, for example, if we are asking black and brown women, well, what are your experiences of diversity programs? What is your experience of gender equality programs? We need to compare that to what white women are saying, for example, because their experiences are vastly different, right? White women may say, yes, this works for me. I love networking after hours. You know, women who who are not parents would say, yeah, that works for me. But when you ask a mother, if you ask a black and brown woman, her experience might be fundamentally different. So we need to compare what is one group saying Versus the other group. We can't just look at it blankly and assume that workplaces are being experienced by everyone in the same way.
0: Mm. Absolutely, absolutely agree with you. What are some of the common mistakes that companies make when they do decide to introduce DEI programs?
1: So the first thing is, and I'm probably stressing this a lot because it's such a bane of my existence, Mm is this over-reliance on diversity stats, right? We say diversity, equality, or equity and inclusion, Mm -hmm. but a lot of leaders think that all the work is on diversity alone. And if they just have all these great stats, then, you know, that's done. But what this, what this really does, it, it also becomes this get-out-of-jail-free card, right, mm-hmm. organizations that are, are not committed to real cultural transformation because leaders are tempted not to hide behind that. So the mm-hmm. first thing is we need to change the scoreboard. Um, the scoreboard is not just about the diversity stats. We need to hold leaders accountable for some of the things we just spoke about, like the surveys, the attrition of senior Black talent, their progress, their promotion, um, both, you know, up the ladder, but also laterally in an organization. And we need to put these measures on leader scorecards and we need to hold them accountable. So there's, there's also this, um, and I've seen this happen you know, quite a lot in the workplace, that there's this narrative as well that if we have a number, and the number looks good, then we only just report in that number. But it's the start, right? Mm. It's not its not the real work of creating an environment of psychological safety. Mm. It's not the destination. It really just gets us, you know, at the starting line. It doesn't even get us into the game. Mm. So we need to focus on that. That's the first thing. Then there's this narrative. And, and you know, you've probably heard this and, as a woman of colour in the workplace, this narrative about fixing mm our behaviors. Ooh. And fixing
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> right, I struck a
0: nerve there. <laughs> Ooh, my me me and my attitude.
1: <laughs> I you know, and I could tell, you know, we we're strong assertive women and um You know this is very frustrating for me because it's still happening in workplaces and too many of these DI programs think that you can just fix equality by targeting an underrepresented group with these self-help courses and working on their behavior and Mm. mindset now i'm not saying personal development is not important right but that's Mm. not the work that's not diversity and inclusion work bias and inequality are systemic we don't need to fix the behaviors of underrepresented group, we need to fix workplaces. Mm. Now, I've heard this so many times in my career, right? I've heard things like this. Oh, Sharita, be strong, but be nice. Don't be too aggressive. You know, be Mm. assertive, but be friendly. Be firm, be dominant, fix this, fix that, blah, blah, blah. It's, It's tiring. And it's conveniently appealing for organizations to suggest that, we can just solve for equality if we just change the behavior of an underrepresented group. Mm. Because this advice just places all the onus on us and mm. none of the biased systems and structures in our environment. And the truth is, biased systems will neutralize our efforts, regardless of how much personal accountability we take on. Mm. Now, a couple of years ago, I'm just giving you a personal story that speaks to this um, the leaning brand of corporate feminism was mm. all the rage. And, and I was in the workplace at the time. and I was on a leadership development track. Now, the leading brand of of corporate feminism got such a bad rap, right, particularly Mm. from women of color, because it was suggesting at the time that an upheaval of the status quo was not necessary because all that was needed was for for women to rise, was for them to change their behavior. Mm. And that placed such an unfair burden on us and none on institutions when, in fact, our experiences were telling us, and this was supported by research, that our businesses were not meritocracies. Oh. And I think it was it was a lady, an activist as well, called Minda Hearts, and she wrote this really great book called The Memo and, mm. and she said something along the lines of, um, you know, as women of color, we have been leaning in all the time and we are leaning in. And she's really right, you know, because as women of color, as black and brown women, we have to work harder and we have to put ourselves out there to succeed because we just don't have the same support structures and networks as white people. Mm-hmm. And in my experiences, myself and other senior black and brown women who, like me, were hardworking, we're confident, we're outspoken, um, and we're doing all the personal development and courses. We were asking for promotions, we were being courageous but we weren't progressing the same way. Mm. And we were also experiencing backlash and double standards. We were being penalized for asking for more. So we felt that we already had everything we needed to succeed, but it was organizations that were not leading it. They weren't Mm. leading it to our strengths. So we have to start moving these conversations away in DEI programs and fixing the behaviors of people. And Mm. we need to focus on systemic bias and barriers. And the behaviors that we've been asked to assimilate to these are not designed with us in mind, so we're not going to be authentic if we have to fit in with these prototypes for success, right? Mm. Because then we won't have the freedom to define our own versions of success. And the next thing that's, you know, that's come out a lot that I've seen in the workplace and I, I see this now as I work with leaders in, in other geographies as well, DI is not a once off event,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? And I say this tongue in cheek because we touched on this as well, you know, I, I say change and there's, It's a popular saying that says, change doesn't happen from what you do occasionally. It happens from what you do consistently. Mm. Now, diversity inclusion is often seen as like, okay, it's about going on a training course, right? We'll do these unconscious bias courses. And I have lots of you at unconscious bias courses, by the way, and why those are not effective. Oh, it's (laughs) about sitting in a room for a few days. And then we all talk about, you know, sing Kumbaya and talk about how we are all different, we create awareness and understanding. Now that's a great first step, but then what? What happens then? I don't know if you recall the story about Amy Cooper um, in the US, the Central Park incident last year. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Apparently, um, and I don't know if this is anecdotal, but apparently she went on three unconscious bias courses Mm -hmm. and she still thought it was okay to threaten the life of a black man. Mm -hmm. And again, that's proof is that this is about transformational work. This is about behavioral change. Mm. It's not just about creating high levels of awareness. Mm. So most organizations invest in the creating this awareness and doing the training courses. But then when it comes to behavioral change, we're left wanting. Mm. And then we don't, we reach transformation fatigue because we're not seeing real changes. Mm. Now people need, they need what I call micro actions, right? These are practical everyday things that can be applied inclusion doesn't happen by accident it requires effort and action and it has to be embedded into your culture and lived out every day it's not about a training course or a ceo making a performative speech it's built through relationships and it's built through daily micro interactions you know you can have the best training courses and great diversity numbers but we all know, like, when Bob comes up to me at the water cooler, he says, hey, Shwita, who's looking after your kids while you're at work? Mm. I don't feel like I'm in a very inclusive environment, mm. right? Because he won't ask the same question to Pete. So if your leaders don't know how to interrupt bias, if they don't know what microaggressions look like and how to be allies, then we don't have an inclusive environment. And it's the little gestures that create the biggest impact. Mm. You know, I, it comes to mind for me as I talk to you now about a board meeting I was at once and I, I finished this presentation and I was feeling really proud of myself and I gave it my best shot and I got the okay to start this new project and one of my senior white male colleagues piped up and he said to me he said Wow, well, you're really taking on a lot. Hey, eh? I hope you have a good au pair at home <laughs> <laughs> I, as I'm saying it now to you I'm it, it triggers me. Mm. There were so many things wrong with that statement. And this was a progressive global organization with great DI policies and stats, but he was a senior individual and he had been in diversity training. He was even championing some programs and he didn't see what was wrong with what he said. Mm. Now Stanford's been working on this great initiative, um, you know, which I can share later, um, about how the use of language actually creates inclusive um, environments and how subtle changes in language the way we talk to each other can have the biggest impact so just changing language moving words away from one to the other like stop calling women bossy and call women assertive instead mm. um, you know don't use gendered language in your uh, recruitment ads Don't talk about pizza fridays right in your pizza in your in your uh, recruitment ads because not everyone likes to have pizza on a friday and drink beer Mm. so there's just simple things that we can start doing that creates this inclusive environment and then we need leaders and this is important leaders have to role model the appropriate behavior Mm. so if you're serious if companies are serious about dei they have to invest and they have to invest in continuous learning It's not just about having the training program. They have to do this continuously and they have to embed their actions into their culture. Mm. And the last, which I'll touch on, which is very important, so, you know, stop me at any time because I'm, you know, going through a lot of things now. But the next for me is strategic ownership and accountability. Mm -hmm. Now, I think companies are saying, and you touched on this, that they they recognize that DEI is a strategic business priority, right? Mm. But it still amazes me that companies take DI and they put into the hands of HR. Yeah. Now, don't get me wrong, right? I think HR has a huge and very important role to play. But HR as a function has had varied success in establishing themselves as a strategic business partner. And when you take DI and you put into the hands of a functional unit, be it HR or anywhere, it sends a signal out to say this is a functional risk responsibility. When in fact it's not, it's a company-wide strategic business priority. So accountability has to lie with the leadership team. It has to sit well and be owned by the entire executive team and on their scorecard. The commitment of the CEO in driving the DEI agenda is vital. And this is an area even the best well-intended organizations come and done. It's the companies where the CEO is actively engaged and held accountable for its success or failure that stand out. And organizations that have a DI leader and this this is imperative. If you want to focus on DI, you need to have a DI leader and a DI function in your organization. This leader has to have support, they have to have authority, mm. and they have to have the mandate to make decisions. Mm. This has to be an EPSCO role and have direct access to the board. Mm. They must have the authority to hold other leaders accountable, including the CEO. They can't be tokens, mm. right? If they don't have that authority, then they are tokens. They have to have the ability to steer policies and drive changes. Too often in companies that are not really committed to transformation, these roles are set up to fail because Mm -hmm. they don't have the support. Mm -hmm. And they set up environments which are really not safe because these individuals are also victims of the same behaviours that they were hired to fix, and that's not fair. Mm -hmm. So very often you'll see that these programmes are also kind of conceptualised by select few people right? And that's not inclusive because diverse voices are not being heard. So the conceptualization of the DEI strategy has to be opened up now. We have to open it up to the entire workplace, to stakeholders from all underrepresented groups. And every leader must be held accountable to the standards set by the entire organization, not just a select few. Now, I, I don't know if you recall called Starbucks um, a couple of years ago. They had a high profile case of uh, racial profile in yeah. one of their restaurants. Mm. Yeah. So last year, they announced that, you know, they're going to take some real serious measures and they, they, they put a you know, diversity and inclusion lead in place. But what they did was they, they put out an action, a very decisive action, that they would be linking executives' pay to the success of inclusion initiatives, not mm-hmm. just diversity initiatives, inclusion initiatives. And they'll now broaden the scope of the entire mentorship program By linking underrepresented groups to senior leaders and senior leaders will be held personally accountable for the promotion of each individual underrepresented employee. Mm. So that plays DI firmly onto the scorecard of senior leaders. Mm. And that's real progress. That's real change. Right. Mm. There's also and I just want to I want to end with this because, you know, I, I know I'm saying a lot, but this is this is a huge one for me. There's this tendency to take DI and to make it the responsibility of a committee of volunteers, right? Mm-hmm. We've seen this many times. Mm-hmm. We're gonna set up a DI committee, who wants to volunteer? And these are generally people from underrepresented groups. Now, firstly, if you don't reward and compensate people for their efforts in DI, then you are saying that you're not serious about mm-hmm. it. If diversity, equality, and inclusion is imperative for business performance, as we are seeing, and research is telling us that. And if you're willing to invest into what other strategic business initiatives, then why should DEI be any different? Mm. DEI is not charity, it's business sense, right? It's not the responsibility of a select group of people to sit in a room and solve for how to make a workplace inclusive. Mm. You know, we we have this tendency to say, okay, we'll form a, a gender equality committee, for example, we'll put all women on the committee. Now, that already absolves many people from being accountable, right? Particularly those who benefit from inequality. Mm. So, that's an unfair burden that we place the marginalized groups, and we don't reward them appropriately. Mm. And rewards are not just financial rewards. People who, who do the DI work should be given other benefits, mm. and that can come in the form of career progress, mentorship, access to networks, acknowledgement on their performance evaluation. Mm-hmm. Right. So, if we're not doing all of these things, then the organization is sending a signal that it's not committed to DEI mm-hmm. and it's not committed to business
0: growth. Mm. i you know, I've had a, no, a number of conversations with um, clients that I've coached, some of whom are part of these diversity committees, <laughs> and mm-hmm. you know, one of the things that comes through quite often. Is how they end up being victimized for speaking up on the issues yes. that exist within the company as far as d i is concerned they yes. get sidelined they get you know subjected to very aggressive behaviors um you know there you know so many different forms of resistance that exist within the workplace I think about even you know if you are a a a black woman for instance and you have um a, a a racially charged incident uh that you are exposed to at the hands of a maybe a white man and he happens to be the the blue-eyed boy in the company because you know he's charming and he gets all the top clients and you know he manages a very very lucrative book um for the organization and therefore They will do any and everything to protect him. And so his victims end up being the ones who are re-victimized, end up being the ones who are pushed out of organizations even, um, where it's just made completely unbearable for you because how dare you speak up and say anything and confront anything with this person who is our star, who we are looking after and investing in. What are some of the, the potential impacts for organizations who do behave in that way and who don't actually take DEI and creating safe environments for everyone within their organizations?
1: So, you know, as you're talking, I was triggered by the example that you you were using, you know, about the cycle of victimization, the cycle Mm. of oppression, um, and how we all experience these overlapping forms of oppression and privilege in the workplace. Mm. Now, you know, to to firstly, I think I'll answer your question in in two different ways. I think, firstly, I'm very strong advocate for the fact that diversity and inclusion activists in the organization cannot only be people from underrepresented groups right, right. we have to hold dominant groups responsible as well right. they need to be on the committees it needs to be on their scorecard they need to be sitting in you know in, in committees that are, are, are furthering the DEI agenda and they must be held accountable because it's all well and good to say oh, this is somebody else's responsibility, it's C. Claire's responsibility, it's Charita's responsibility, it's resolving, you know, the Johns and the Toms of the world. Mm-hmm. So they have to be part of that, they have to be held accountable, and those metrics need to be on their scorecard. Mm-hmm. Now, you, you ask me, what is the downside now of, you know, companies that don't take this seriously? And again, the research comes to mind, because The research is actually quite extensive, right? Mm -hmm. And it's quite rigorous in this regard that organizations that don't have inclusive environments and don't have psychological safety are simply not able to survive in a VUCA world, which is a volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous world. And we are not calling this out enough in organizations. We are still relying on, you know, the gatekeepers in organizations to kind of see DEI as the morally correct thing to do, which it is, Mm -hmm. but it's also business sense right? Mm -hmm. We're not asking for favors. This is not charity, right? Mm -hmm. We are saying that this is about business growth. So we need to call that out a lot more. We need to call out these numbers and say, guys, this is actually detrimental to our business. Now, Catalyst, which is a large global diversity inclusion NGO, as well as um, um, Harvard and Stanford have released findings in this regard. And it's shown that organizations that don't have these inclusive, not diverse, but don't have inclusive environments, are just not able to innovate. They can't adapt. Now we're seeing this now post the pandemic, right, and Mm -hmm. as the effects of the pandemic that are, are starting to set in, that we absolutely have to have inclusive leadership if we are able to pivot, adapt, and innovate organizations that can't do these things can't outperform their peers Mm. the other impact in organizations i mean not that we need it more right i mean i think that's pretty like (laughs) it's business sense but you know since i'm 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 generally asked this and i find i I do a lot of my work and you probably are as well is to actually just get people to understand the benefits of, of diversity and inclusion but the but the upside that we often overlook is the mental health effect on employees. And that's wide reaching. Now, the emotional tax of exclusion and toxic workplaces is so severe that there are actually scientific studies now that are focused on delving into the effects of exclusion and racial trauma in the workplace. There's a professor called Professor Jane O'Reilly. She's an American professor of organizational behavior. And she focuses on actually studying what racism and exclusion in the trauma, uh, racism and um, exclusion in the workplace does to people's psychological states. And she found that exclusion actually triggers the same part of your brain as physical pain. And even more concerningly, they found that exclusion is more likely to cause employees to quit compared to harassment. Mm-hmm. Now, the effects of exclusion and microaggressions can cause such noticeable signs of physical and psychological strain that it actually causes workers to go into states of depression and anxiety. Mm-hmm. Now, I personally experienced this in the workplace. Like years of trauma some of which I was even unconscious to result in a complete burnout for me Mm. and deep emotional strain. So these things are real and they need to be called out. Mm. And then there's the ripple effect on society. I mean, if we are, if we are not creating equal societies, then, you know, what exactly if in our economies and our workplaces, we're not creating environments where women and women of color, black and brown women and people from marginalized groups can thrive, then we don't have an equal society. We don't have equal homes. Now, even before the pandemic, right, one Mm. in four women were saying, I want to leave the workplace because of bias and unequal work practices, Mm. right? And we're now seeing the economic impacts of the pandemic, and guess what? It's not surprising, right? Mm. Who's been affected the most by the pandemic? Mm. It's women, particularly women of color. In South Africa, we lost three million jobs since the pandemic. 67% of those were lost by women. And this is because of unequal systems. Women are not in growth industries and they're not in senior roles because workplaces were not designed for us. When schools closed its doors, it was women who were working the double shift. They performed an extra seven to eight hours of unpaid labor a week. And we're now seeing that it's going to take an extra 37, 36 years to reach gender parity. Mm. Now, that's proof, right? That it's not a matter of time until we get to equal. In fact, we're going backwards. We're mm. losing the gains we made. So if these things are not proof enough that our environments are actually pushing us out and it's causing us to flee the workplace in record numbers, what more proof can we actually put forward?
0: Absolutely i mean we could talk about this for days without stopping <laughs> but unfortunately we do need to wrap up this conversation but i definitely want to continue to have these conversations because honestly there's just so much work that needs to be done and it all it's so urgent but sharita for people who would love to connect with you online or follow your work where can they find you
1: uh, so I'm on Instagram at Sharita Dyer and you can also visit my website, charitadier.com.
0: Okay, perfect. Sharita, thank you so much for your time and for the huge amounts of knowledge that you've shared with us today and continue fighting oh, the you. good fight.
1: Thank you, Sikha, for having me.
0: And thank you for joining us for another episode of The Workplace Revolution with me, Sile Bolani. I will see you again next time.